hello and welcome to another episode of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays. Happy Hanukkah. Whatever you happen to celebrate around this time of year, we are reviewing Christmas horror films, and this is the last of our four for this month. And I think we picked a pretty good one, Craig, for the tail end. Or I you think did. so, too. <laughs> this is ni- <laughs> the 1984 uh, Steven Spielberg-produced Christopher Columbus-written Joe Dante-directed Gremlins. And uh, I have to say... I- as, fun, as as notorious as this movie is, and as much as I remember enjoying this movie, I kid you not, I don't think I've seen it since it came out. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Here, I was thinking that I was going to be the one who was the freak because I saw this movie, I was five years old when this movie came out, and my parents took me to the theater to see it. Um, and while I enjoyed it, it really scared me <laughs> too. <laughs> um, uh, and And when I put it in to watch it today, I realized that I probably haven't sat down and watched this for a good 10 years. And that really surprised me because I'm a big fan of the movie. Um, with that lineup that you mentioned, Joe Dante, Chris Columbus, and Steven Spielberg, it, it would have been really difficult for them to go wrong. I mean, these are some really talented guys who, uh, on their own, have put out a million great movies. Um, so that collaboration, I imagine, and, and what I read was uh, it was a good collaboration. They really enjoyed working with one another. Um, and I think that uh, they got a really good film as a result. Yeah, and you know, I've got to say too, I also saw this in the theater, and this was, I, I just remember, this was a fantastic year for movies. Um, Ghostbusters, I think, came out the same weekend that Gremlins did, and that was huge. Huh? Gremlins was huge, and then uh, we had all been waiting uh, Temple of Doom, a Steven Spielberg-directed film, which competed, <laughs> competed with Gremlins as well at the box office. All three of those movies did fantastic, and all three of those movies were hype machines. I mean, I was about the same age you were, five or six, and I remember the hype uh, behind this. I had a Ghostbusters t-shirt. We had a Gremlin stuffed toy at home. I think those were really hot Christmas items uh, at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember going to Pizza Hut and playing – now, this is my recollection anyway. I remember playing an arcade game for – uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom that I think was there before the movie itself came out. That sounds right. Does that sound right? Okay. Yeah, it does. I, I remember that. Because I, I, I remember playing this game not knowing an, about the movie yet. And we, again, we went to see the movie in the theaters because it was huge. And I was like, oh, I could play this game. I could learn a little bit about the movie before I see it. Yeah. What what a year, man. 1984. If I could go back to 1984 and just live there for a while. Oh. <laughs> that, that was... It was a good time. Yeah. You, you mentioned those movies that it, it opened up against. Um, of the movies that we've watched, I mean, all of them have had distinctly Christmas elements, but this really feels like a Christmas movie. Um, and ironically, it was intended to come out at Christmas, but um, the studio realized that they didn't have anything to compete with some of the summer blockbusters. Um, so they rushed it for a summer release, which, you know, I don't know. We, we still went. It still got a good audience. But, man, this is a Christmassy movie. This is definitely – I feel like they may have missed a little bit of opportunity by uh, not releasing it at Christmas time. But, but whatever. I mean, uh, we still got it, and it's, it's, it's great. Yeah, it, it is a Christmassy movie. You're right, more so than the other ones. Uh, it definitely takes place at Christmas. It's kind of all about Christmas. It starts out with a Christmas present. Uh, in fact, mm-hmm. it starts out in a way that I do not remember it starting out, uh, and, and that is almost this – honestly, the whole movie has so many nods to so many different movies uh, throughout it, but it opens up as like this detective gumshoe kind of way where uh, – uh-huh. Where this man who who looks like uh, almost looks like Bob Hoskins from uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh, but you'll recognize him if you watched a lot of television uh, during this time. His name is uh, Hoyt Axton, and he's actually more of a of a country western singer than he is uh, an actor. But he did a ton huh. of stuff on uh, oh my gosh, he did a ton of stuff on um, on television at the very least, uh, and quite a bit of, uh, of of movies as well. I mean, you'll recognize him. 
uh, from this era. Anyway, uh, he he's got this voiceover uh, th- that mm-hmm. almost sounds like uh, you know she walked in and it was uh, a dark stormy night. I just poured my third bottle of scotch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The whole movie kind of has a feel like it's one of those older type movies. I mean, it reminds me almost a little bit of the beginning of the original Little Shop of Horrors with the the narration over the opening credits and stuff. Friends, let me introduce myself. Peltzer's the name, Rand Peltzer. That's me there on the corner. I'm an inventor. And I have a story to tell. Yeah, I know. Who hadn't got a story? Well, nobody's got a story like this one. Nobody. I I feel like that had to be intentional. It feels like an old movie. I mean, it just, I guess, by today's standards, it really is an old movie now. But um, it it just feels like it calls back to an era like in the 40s and 50s. In a way, it's also contemporized, too, in just the way that it looks because it looks so good. The colors and and, uh, just all of the imagery in the movie is so strong. Like, it's just a a beautiful movie to watch. Even this opening scene where it opens up in dingy Chinatown and things are all kind of smoky and foggy and it's kind of seedy looking still the color is so good and i mean it's just it draws you in right from the very beginning yeah it does call back to those uh especially those older films where chinatown was exoticized and right it, it, <laughs> it really runs the risk it, it's right on the edge of being a little racially offensive uh, sure. Because he does go into this Chinatown shop, and who's in there but this this little boy? And, and he follows him in, and says, "You sure this is your this this is your place?" And he's like, "Yeah, my dad's shop is right down here." And of course, it's under this building and this place that's hard to find. And when he walks in, it looks like a, an opium den, you know, <laughs> from mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. from the Chinatown uh, again from from these movies. And uh, the guy who's in here is played by. The shop owner is played by a man who has been in, I think, pretty much any time they needed a Chinese man in a film from, like, the 1930s <laughs> on, this guy was the person. <laughs> I mean, he's, he, his name is – it's Ken – I can't remember his name. But he's in this movie, and he's 80-something years old, and apparently wow. they still had to use makeup so that he looked older. He yeah, I read young. that too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and he's, you know, you're right. They play on a stereotype very much. I mean, this looks like um, an ancient Chinese wise man, you know, not yeah. an actual American citizen uh, of the time. <laughs> um, but I don't know. Maybe it's because because I'm just so used to it. Maybe it's because I'm so nostalgic for the movie. That doesn't even really cross my mind. Yes, it's a caricature. Um, I could see how perhaps if if that were my culture that was being represented, um, maybe it might rub me the wrong way a little bit. But here, it doesn't really bother me at all. No, and, and I think that actually the reason it doesn't is because it's so obviously a caricature. Uh, I think it's mm-hmm. I think, as you said, it it starts it starts very cleverly with uh, that voiceover, which immediately gets you thinking of old movie. So when he meets this man, and it's not like he's talking like uh, you know Mickey Rooney and Breakfast at Tiffany's. Right. So you know they don't go that far, um, and they don't dwell in here too much, and they don't mm-hmm. you know show you all these crazy things in the shop or whatnot. It's pretty straightforward. I think it I think it falls on the on the side of the fence that's that's okay. It's it's enough of a throwback that it's okay, and it's obviously a throwback, so we're fine sure. with it. Um, and he uh, is looking around, and this man's an inventor. And, and this is another thing Chris Columbus loves to put in his movies, like gadgets and inventions and things and inventors and whatnot. And uh, this man is showing this guy this truly horrible invention called the Bathroom Buddy or something, where uh, <laughs> it's like a travel uh, contraption that has everything that you'd need in your bathroom in, in one thing, like a toothbrush and toothpaste and whatnot. And of course, it doesn't work very well. So he's still putting the finishing touches on. He embarrasses himself in front of this guy. Uh, but it's, it's like he's looking for a Christmas present for his son. But he also is a consummate salesman, and everywhere he goes, he's looking for an opportunity to sell his stuff. Uh, and, yeah. and again, it's another neat setup for this guy. Anyway, so then you have the the mad, wacky inventor uh, scenario coming in as well. Uh, and he, he goes around in the shop, and he hears some sound, and he looks and sees this little cage back there that's covered up. And when he uncovers it, there's this cute little creature. We don't see the creature in the beginning, 
which is also another wise choice. Uh, but he's mm-hmm. taken by it, and he says, I want this for my son, and the man says, no. Um, a mogwai carries too much responsibility. He's not for sale at any price. But as Rand starts throwing money on the table, uh, his grandson is watching and is trying to convince Grandpa to sell the to sell the creature. And eventually, when Grandpa walks away, he says to Rand, meet me outside, and I'll I'll do the deal with you. So sure enough, he meets him outside, Rand pays him the money, and he walks home with this cage, with this mogwai inside. Yeah, and it's a cute little setup, and then it throws us right into the main location, um, which is Kingston Falls, and it just cuts to this – you know, this has all been very dark and smoky, um, and then it cuts to this bright, snowy outdoor scene, and we're looking at this – what looks kind of like a vintage uh, 40s – billboard for um a dj and and we hear the music Uh, it it comes in loud and strong this loud christmas song um and it's upbeat and it's fun and we kind of scan through this this set this town set of kingston falls and it might look familiar to some people because it's the exact same set that they use for the town and back to the future but it's all very oh gosh i can't think of any word other than nostalgic i mean it, it looks like it looks like a scene out of it's a wonderful life. I mean, that's what it looks like. And that's the feel that you get, uh, from the movie as it just kind of pans through this town. Um, and we kind of see some different uh, people in the town for, we, we see the, uh, the, the Christmas tree vendor, and um, Corey Feldman, <laughs> little <laughs> tiny young Corey Feldman is helping out at this Christmas tree lot. And he's dressed as a Christmas tree. Like he's literally, he is a Christmas tree walking around. It's hilarious. Um, and then we meet uh, our main character, Billy, who was the inventor's son. And he's played by Zach Galligan, who um, I think this was his first big break. I don't know if he had worked at all before this. If he had, he was pretty unknown. We've talked about him before. Uh, he was the lead in Waxwork, and we were pretty critical of his acting in that. I think he's perfect in this movie. They considered both um, Judd Nelson and Emilio Estevez for this role. And of course, it's because I love this movie. I can't imagine anybody else in this role. Um, but Billy and Zach Galligan, Galligan in this movie. He's just so doe-eyed and innocent. He's really easy to root for and identify with. And he's got his dog, Barney, and, and he's trying to make his way to work. His car won't start. And so um, he says, you know, his neighbor sees that his car won't start. His neighbor is Mr. Futterman, played by the classic Dick Miller, um, <laughs> who we've seen in so many movies at this point. This is the movie that I remember him from, but we've seen him in so many things uh, at this point. Hey, Billy, what's the matter? You need a jump? Oh, no, thanks, Mr. Futterman. I'm pretty much late for work as it is. His goddamn foreign gods, he always frees up on you. You don't find American machinery doing that. Our stuff can take anything. See that plow? 15 years old. Hasn't given me a day's trouble in 15 years. You know why? Kentucky Harvester. Ain't some farm piece of crap you pick up these days. That's a Kentucky Harvester. Hmm. Well, if I want to keep my job, I really think I should be going now. Hey, how's that uh, comic strip of yours coming? I expect to see you in the funnies any day now with Smiling Jack and Little Abner. Oh, well, Mr. Futterman, they don't run those comics anymore. They don't. All of this happens really fast, and it's really just an opportunity to let us meet some of these players that are going to come around um, later on. He gets. He just makes it to work on time. He's got his dog with him. You know, apparently he lives in one of these worlds where you can just take your dog with you to work. Uh, <laughs> I wish I lived in that world. And the dog's name is Barney. And when he gets there, he's greeted by Kate, played by Phoebe Cates, who, man, in the 1980s, weren't we all just in love with Phoebe Cates? Oh yeah. Were you? I mean, I, oh, yeah. I was just desperately <laughs> in love with her. Oh my God, she's so beautiful. She still is. She doesn't act much anymore. She kind of retired to start her family. Um, but uh, just just so pretty and so girl next door. And like uh, your heart just melts for her. Yeah. Um, and, and then uh, another employee there, uh, Gerald, is played by Judge Reinhold, um, who was pretty popular uh, at the time. In fact, he and Phoebe Cates just a couple of years earlier had filmed Fast Times at Ridgemont High together, and that uh, had been a pretty big movie. I guess that Judge Reinhold's character initially had a much larger role, but they ended up cutting it down. Um, the movie in its entirety is an hour and 45 minutes long. The original rough cut was two hours and 40 minutes. Um, so they had to go and do a lot of cutting, and I think most of uh, Judge Reinhold's stuff 
stuff ended up on the floor. Um, and, and then the villain or what we kind of assumed it's the Scrooge character uh, in the movie, uh, Mrs. Deagle played by Polly holiday comes in and she has a confrontation. She's carrying, she comes marching down the street, carrying this giant snowman's head, like a ceramic snowman's head. That's clearly broken off of the body. And she brings it in and, um, she, just pushes her way through the line and comes right up to Billy's station and says, your dog broke my snowman. And I didn't remember how dark this got. I mean, I watched this movie all through my childhood from the time that I was a little kid. And I think that some of these darker elements went over my head. I'm terribly sorry. Just tell me how much I owe you. I'll be more than happy. To I don't you. want money. I want your dog. Barney? Give him to me. I'll take him to the kennel. They'll put him to sleep. It'll be quick and painless compared to what I could do to him. What could you do? I'll catch the beast myself. Then he'll get what he deserves. A slow, painful death. Maybe I'll put him in my spin dryer on high heat. Like what? Like, <laughs> yeah, she's threatening. That's horrible. She's threatening to kill his dog quite openly <laughs> and quite honestly, yeah. <laughs> multiple <Right>. times. <laughs> yes, multiple times. And and I guess that when Chris Columbus or- originally wrote this stri- script, um, it was significantly darker. And there are some things that they changed. We'll talk about when we get to them. But there are definitely horror elements and there are definitely scary elements. But at the same time, this is one of those rare movies that I think does a good job of really balancing the horror and the comedy and the family friendliness. Like, I mean, it feels like a sweet movie, I mean, like a, a kind of a heartwarming movie, but there certainly are the darker elements of it too. Yeah, and I remember that distinctly even at that time. It was a bit of a controversy. Parents were bringing their kids to this movie, and the way it had been marketed with the Mogwai and everything being so cute, a lot of parents, I think, were led astray and pretty upset that they were bringing their young kids in, and then they were going to see you know, gremlins getting blown up in a microwave and and people getting killed and things like that and I, I i do remember that now i don't remember my parents being so up in arms about it i remember my parents because chris columbus then did goonies about a, a year or two after this and i remember my parents being more upset about the language in goonies uh, than they were <laughs> about the violence in these movies they're so, they're so american i don't know what that says about your parents <laughs> i don't know either <laughs> oh man but it is cute i mean it's there are those dark elements but uh it, it like you talked about um gizmo uh eventually we get back you know billy's back at his house and we meet his mom she's played by francis lee mccain um she was uh gordy's mom in stand by me she was um the she was the main kid's mom in footloose she was lorraine's mom in back to the future i she was very much a go-to mom of the 80s apparently um and and i really like her in this movie but um we meet her and there's this running gag of of the dad's inventions always malfunctioning and making a huge mess and um But finally, the dad comes home, um, and he says right away, I've got a present for you to the, to the kid. And he, and he hands Billy this box and Billy shakes it. And we hear the little mogwai noise inside. Um, (laughs) and he says, Oh no, no, don't shake it. Um, and, and Billy says, Oh, it's a puppy. I know it's a puppy, but then he opens it up and this little creature comes out and I'm sure all of our listeners are familiar with, uh, what this thing looks like, but it is so stinking cute. It's just this cute little furry animal, brown and white fur, um, with these great big, almost bat like ears. Uh, and it's just adorable. And it talks I mean, kind of talks like it mostly just makes noises. And throughout the movie, um, both the Mogwai and the gremlins can kind of talk but more. Mostly they just kind of repeat words that they've heard, but Gizmo is voiced by Howie Mandel. And so he's got this high, just really cute little voice and he sings and it's just the cutest thing. Uh, and <laughs> this time watching this, I was thinking, <laughs> uh, he's sitting there opening it with his mom and dad and the dog. And I'm thinking, oh, poor dog. 
poor Barney has just been totally displaced by this cute little by this cute little mogwai. Um, I was thinking they have so much trust in this dog to open the, to, to pull this creature out right in front of it. Uh, I was like, wow, man! And, and especially later on when he sleeps with the mogwai and the dog is right there. I'm thinking, man, you really this dog must be a very pacifist dog for you guys. Uh, to not even be concerned that he might uh, give the creature a bit of a hard time. I all, you know, thinking from an adult perspective now too, of course, I never considered this when I was a kid, but I also think, you know, this guy Rand um, must also have a lot of faith in his kid. I mean, <laughs> the guys, the kids are <laughs> got a dog and now he's giving him another pet as a responsibility. That's quite a bit of a responsibility for one kid. But as it turns out, Gizmo doesn't really need much taken care of, except for the Chinese kid told uh, Rand that there are three rules. And the three rules are number one, he hates bright lights. We know that. But you gotta keep him out of the sunlight. Sunlight'll kill him. Number two, keep him away from water. Don't give him any water to drink. And whatever you do, don't give him a bath. And probably the most important thing, don't ever feed him after midnight. <laughs> it's just a setup for him to allow every single one of those things to happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Corey Feldman finally his character comes over and uh, sees the Mogwai and I think this is the first time something bad happens right obviously mom yeah, takes yeah. a picture and she flashes a camera at them and that's that's the impetus for him telling the rules but uh, right. anyway uh, yeah they go upstairs and they have a little chat back and forth about comic books and he says oh by the way I have this strange creature and the whole time you know through this movie again as an adult again looking back on it I'm thinking man nobody gives a crap that this creature that nobody has ever heard of or seen or can imagine has existed before is now just in his house and he owns one. Yeah. Right? They're so cavalier <laughs> yeah. and casual about it. <laughs> I know. It's funny. I thought the same thing, especially since later on, Billy takes him to his science teacher and this <laughs> science teacher is totally cavalier about it. Like, oh, here's a species nobody's ever seen before. I'm just going to do private experiments on it in my science classroom <laughs> that's right that's right <laughs> and isn't this a middle school science teacher i'm not sure it i don't says, know i looked at the sign several times in the background as they're coming in and out of the main doors of that building and it says something something middle school i'm thinking you're not trying to tell me that billy is a middle school student but no, uh, uh, maybe this is just one of his old teachers. Yeah, that um, could be it, it does make it does make sense that it's a middle school though, because Corey Feldman seems significantly younger than Billy, and oh, I, I think it's his school, it's his class, so it would make sense. Okay, there um, you go. You're right about that. All right, so anyway, they're upstairs and they're playing around with the Mogwai, and Corey Feldman's character uh, Pete, I think is his name, uh, spills yeah. some water accidentally on Gizmo, and. Then Gizmo like really starts freaking out. He falls forward. His back starts to uh, bubble up, and out of his back pops about five or six uh, little hairballs uh, that fly mm-hmm. up into the air, fall down, and like a balloon, kind of slowly expand and molt into more mogwai. Apparently, this mm-hmm. is how they reproduce. Uh, but it's interesting because Billy makes a comment later to his dad when he when he tells him that this has happened or his mom and and says they're not like Gizmo. Uh, they're a Gizmo I think is just a character all his own. He's cute, he's friendly, he's pretty pacifist. These other ones are a little more mischievous. They're more like, like mm-hmm. brothers and sisters. And so now he's got a whole suitcase full of these little creatures that nobody's ever seen or heard about before and he's like, "Oh well, now I just have a bunch of them." And and one of them uh, which seems to be the leader of the gang, it looks a little right. different from the rest. And he is Stripe, and he's another one that I remember very much from this movie. Yeah, he's got this white mohawk that makes him uh, different than the rest. Yeah, otherwise you really can't tell him apart. And the animatronics for these creatures are pretty good for their time. You can tell mm-hmm. uh, when they go to close-up that they're using a, a much more detailed, mocked-up uh, a little bit bigger puppet uh, for that just to get all the facial expressions and everything right. Uh, because when they're their actual size, they're a lot more limited in what they're able to do uh, facially and everything. But they do a really good job, I think, of working within those limitations. Like he'll he'll pick up Gizmo, which which looks I mean, if you're really being if you're really looking for how they do it, you can kind of tell as a doll. And then he'll move him off screen and like set him down. And then when the camera comes down, um, you can see that there's a more articulated puppet that's that's already set there. 
on the desk who can move and, and do things a little more. But it's it's really uh, for a movie that, as you said earlier, seems like a throwback to earlier movies, and quite honestly, just seems like a throwback to old B movies. You know, yeah, uh, yeah. It, it has fantastic special effects, especially for the time. It really does, and um, the Mogwai puppet is is really cute. And I mean, it it doesn't necessarily look real; it doesn't look like a living animal, but it, its moves are pretty natural looking. Interestingly enough, like I said earlier, the script was originally supposed to be darker. Now, these new Mogwai, like you said, they are mischievous. Um, like, for example, I think on the first night that he has them, he wakes up in the night and hears his dog whining and he goes outside and he finds his dog strung up in the Christmas lights. Now, it's alive. Um, it's not hung by its neck, but it's it's just hung in the lights. And he thinks that it was Mrs. Deagle that did it. But of course, um, it was these uh, little Mogwai. In the original script, they actually killed the dog. Um, <laughs> and and uh, like I said, uh, eventually these guys are going to turn into the gremlins after they eat after midnight, after the last rule is broken. But um, Stripe, the leader, was originally intended to be Gizmo. Gizmo and Stripe were originally intended to be the same character. But Steven Spielberg stepped in and said that he really wanted one of them to be nice so that uh, the audience would feel a connection um, to huh. to this nice good guy one. So the audience would buy the toys. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> and boy, did we. Man, I think I had a gizmo lunchbox. I uh, love that little guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like we said before, Billy takes uh, one of the new Mogwai, not Gizmo. He really Gizmo is well-behaved. He kind of keeps Gizmo as his personal pet. The other ones are really just more of a new than anything else. He takes the Mogwai to the science teacher, and this is where we're first introduced to this musical motif that becomes associated with the Gremlins. And I've just got to say, the score of this movie I thought was excellent. I just loved it. Yes. And most of the movie is scored, um, except for there are some times when there's Christmas music playing. Um, and also Christmas music is incorporated into the score. Um, but the score here is just so good. And that little Gremlins motif, it, it, it gets stronger when they actually turn into the Gremlins, but we're first introduced to it here. Um, and so basically he leaves this Mogwai with the science teacher. And I, I guess he goes to pick up Kate from her job. She, in addition to working at the bank, she's also volunteering at the local bar, Dory's, um, because the bar has fall, fallen on hard times, so she's trying to help out. And she, it's the end of her shift, and Mr. Futterman is there, and he's been drinking, and, and she's trying to get him home. He drives the snowplow, which is parked outside, but she convinces him that he's been drinking too much and he shouldn't be uh, driving. But he has this little brief monologue. You got you got to watch out for the foreigners because they plant gremlins in their machinery. That's the same gremlins brought down our planes in the big one. Big That's right. World War II. Good old WWII. You know, they're still shipping them over here. They put them in the cars, they put them in the TV, they put them in the stereos and the radios. You stick in your ears, they put them in your watches. They got little teeny gremlins for our watches. Um, I don't think it's such a good idea that you drive. Why don't you walk home? But then Kate and um, Billy, he's walking her home, and they're talking about Christmas, and she says, Mr. Futterman um, has been like this ever since his business went under or he lost his job or something. And Billy says, well, Christmas is supposed to be a happy time. And she says, no, people get really depressed at the holidays. Suicide rates are always the highest. Um, and she tells him that she doesn't celebrate Christmas and, and to which he's surprised. Well, what's not to like? I mean, it's a lot of fun. No? God, say you hate Washington's birthday or Thanksgiving and nobody cares, but say you hate Christmas and everybody makes you feel like you're a leper or something. And he kind of apologizes, and then they have a sweet moment where they're going to set up a date. So we know that this is our kind of cute little uh, love interest. I have to say, I was a little, I kind of groaned at this scene. I thought the dialogue was kind of bad here. It felt very written, let's put it that way. Oh, we're setting up the mystery of why she hates Christmas. We're going to discover right. later. Oh, we've got a little romance thing going all of a sudden. Which, you know, they work at the same bank, and he's he's been in her face and exchanged looks uh, before that. I, I was really surprised they hadn't been on three or four dates already, but... Right, right. Well, you're right. It is a setup for what for why she we find out she doesn't like Christmas later. And that part of it does seem a little contrived. But I have to say that the chemistry between these two, um, which is in large part why uh, 
he got the role was because during their screen test, um, the, the chemistry between these two was good. Um, and I think the chemistry between these two is so good and it's so sweet and they're both so puppy dog eyed. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I still like it. Yes. Yes. The writing's a little bit contrived, but they pull it off. I think, I think it's good. The chemistry's good. No, no question. He goes home, Billy goes home and he's watching, ironically enough, a pod people movie. And the and Gizmo is sitting very politely next to him doing something else while he's watching the movie. But the other Mogwais start um, acting up, start making a bunch of noise. Um, and he says, well, I already fed you. But they, they won't calm down. So he looks at his clock, and it's still like 20 till 12. And he says, well, okay, it's not after midnight yet. Um, so I guess I can give you some food. So they're making all this noise. As soon as he walks out the door, they stop making the noise and they look after him for a little while. And then they all get in the huddle and kind of, and they're like conspiring. So we know something's up and he brings up food and some chicken and they're like eating it savagely. And it's kind of really these close-ups on their face and they're smearing this gross <laughs> chicken all over their face. I remember thinking that part was really gross when I was a kid. Um, and he offers some to uh, Gizmo, but Gizmo won't uh, eat any. And, and and the Mogwai in the lab gets a hold of some food too and eats and we see that. But then it cuts to the next morning and the Mogwai have all transformed into these gross-looking, almost reptilian-looking pods not entirely unlike the pods from Alien. Oh, yeah. Not exactly like them either, but but very similar. And so we know that trouble's brewing. Yeah, again, another big throwback. And and I think even further back than Alien, of course, uh, is uh, back to, uh, I think it's Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And the original mm-hmm. one where you have these these pod creatures in, I think, what ends up being the greenhouse back, which is one of the movies he's watching on television. So the movie's absolutely calling. It's having so much fun with calling back to these earlier movies and just straight out throwing these nods at them. And I think that's part of the comedy of it. But again, uh, it's a little goofy in that... <laughs> Okay, I've got these absolutely disgusting-looking reptilian pods up in my room. Here you go, Mom. Check them out. Wow, these are really weird. Okay, now I'm going to go and leave. We're all just going to go yeah. about our daily business. <laughs> right. I guess we'll just see what happens. <laughs> you know, it, it, there, it is such a throwback to these old movies because a lot of the times in these movies, it just seems like they weren't as concerned with believability as we – are today. Um, One of the problems that I always had with this movie, and I say a problem, I really don't care. I don't need everything explained to me. Um, But isn't it always after midnight? Like, <laughs> like, like, when can you feed them? I know. Because I was wondering technic- that too. <laughs> At what point does technically it- five p.m. is after midnight? <laughs> Maybe is it six a.m.? Is it seven? That's so true. Well, much like in these older movies, you've got to get the woman in peril, and by to do that, you've got to get the dad out of the picture. And so they have dad away at this inventors' convention. And I just have to say something about this scene because I think it pops up somewhere around here where uh, mm-hmm. they're calling dad and they're talking and and you can see on dad's end of the phone he's at this inventors and convention and every single time they they cut to him at this convention the scene is like sillier and sillier he's in a phone booth which he's sharing with another inventor who has this weird contraption on his face it doesn't make any sense there's like a robot in the background but then in the background on the right is is the time machine from H.G. Wells, the, the time mm-hmm. machine. I, and I laughed out loud at this because I could not believe it. But that's in the middle of this conversation, they're cutting back and forth. And when they cut back to him again, the time machine is missing. And there's like a smoky uh, like patch on the floor. And people are kind of milling around and kind of looking at it like, what just happened? Like at this inventor's convention, there are people with these amazing inventions, including a time machine, which is so funny because his dad's got the crappiest, clearly has the crappiest inventions at this, at this whole thing. That's funny. I, I had read that the time machine was back there, but I had missed that little bit. That's funny. It's good. So right away, another thing I like about this movie, and I'm sure it has a lot to do with the editing, but the pacing is pretty good. I mean, we don't get lags in, in the action. Billy goes to work and the pods begin to hatch um, and all this very ominous these ominous sound effects and music play. We don't see what's coming out of them. We just see Gizmo kind of sitting back in the corner, watching in terror and and trembling in terror. And then I think we see maybe a hand grab Gizmo or something like that. Um, And then we cut back to the science teacher and his pod 
hatches too. It hatches like in class. Like he's put it like in some sort of cardboard box or something and the box starts moving and falls off the table right as class is ending. And so he, he ushers all of the kids out and um, he immediately calls Billy and just says, it's Hatch. Um, and Billy says, okay, I'll be right there. And then the science teacher, for some reason, doesn't turn the light on in his, in his room. <laughs> He's been showing a film strip. The film strip's still going on in the background. And he, he thinks that whatever the creature is, is under this table, this lab table. And again, willing suspension of disbelief. He has no idea what this thing is. I think he'd probably approach a little more caution. What he, what he does is he takes a candy bar and he says, here, I got something for you. And he sticks it down under the table and he sticks his arm under the table. And apparently something bites him and yanks on him. And then it cuts away. And we cut to Billy showing up and he, when he walks into the classroom, he sees the science teacher dead on the floor with a needle uh, sticking out of his butt. <laughs> Another one of those places where originally it was meant to be darker. Originally, he was going to have hundreds of hypodermics sticking out of his face. Um, but Spielberg specifically asked them to change that. And then there's this scene that's really pretty inconsequential, but I think I've told this story before. Billy immediately goes to grab the telephone and super fast, seemingly from out of nowhere, from the other side of the table, this green reptilian claw-like hand reaches up and scratches Billy's uh, hand. And it's a total jump scare. It's really not even all that scary. But to five-year-old Craig Higgins, ah. scared me. I screamed. We were in a movie theater <laughs> full of people. I screamed, jumped up in my seat, did a 180 so I was facing backwards in the theater. <laughs> and if I remember correctly, my parents, who were flanking me on either side, just laughed and laughed. <laughs> 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 oh man, but I will I will remember that story until I die, I think. Oh, so and I, I'm pretty sure I stayed and, and watched the rest of the movie and I was fine, but man, that, that jump scare got me. Oh, it's our son's first jump scare. <laughs> <laughs> so he run the, the the creature, the gremlin, um, goes through a vent. So all we've seen of it so far is its hand. Billy runs to the nurse's office to get something to wrap his hand, and this is the first time that we get a complete look at the creature. The creature pops out of one of the cabinets and, and really just kind of stands there and, and taunts Billy for a second before then going through another vent. But these gremlins, I don't know, I'd say they're probably about two feet tall. And yeah. all of this is pre-CGI, complete, you know, before CGI even existed in any fashion. So everything they did had to be practical. And these um, gremlins... I guess Zach Galligan in an interview said that there were so many of these gremlins um, and each one had to be made, you know, on its own. Um, and each one of them cost like thirty to $40,000 to make, which I find really hard to believe. And it must make me think that they did some really fancy camera work using the same ones uh, in different frames. Yeah. Because if they really made as many as it seemed like, that would take up like the whole budget. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they look great. And I guess, I don't know if it was a joke or if it was true, but uh, in the interview, he also said that um, every night after filming, the security would check everybody's cars to make sure that they hadn't stolen them because they were so <laughs> expensive. But it was worth the money because they really look good. I mean, yeah. they really, again, real. Do they look real? I don't know. But they look pretty darn believable. Yeah, I, I like them. You know, they look as real as Gizmo does. In fact, maybe a little more real because they're they're more reptilian. They're more creature-like than Gizmo. Gizmo looks like a furry puppy, and so you start to expect, yeah. I think, a little bit more uh, realism out of that kind of thing because you're used to that. Whereas this is a, a reptilian monster. It could really be anything. And so, you know, can their mouths move as much as uh, as you'd expect them? Probably not. But it doesn't matter because reptiles just have open and closed mouths anyway, you know, most of them. So, right, yeah, right. yeah, you put all that on it, and it's really a wise choice to make them that reptilian and that... Uh, different looking. I, I thought they were pretty good. I, I thought actually that the gremlin shots and the gremlin puppets were more real than any of the Mogwai stuff was. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And there may be, there may be a reason for that. Like I said before, um, Gizmo was originally intended to turn into a gremlin. He was supposed to become Spike. So the guy that invented him or created him only had anticipated his movements for the first half of the movie. And then he wasn't going to be used anymore. And I guess apparently because 
this because Gizmo was a smaller animatronic for whatever reason it malfunctioned more often than the gremlin uh animatronics and so the crew actually came to hate gizmo (laughs) and they 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 made up a list and had it posted somewhere on set it was something like awful things to do to gizmo and we got one of those things in the very next scene we cut back to billy's house where his mom is and we see that the gremlins who have hatched at his house now have gizmo uh, tied up to a dartboard and they're throwing darts at him. And that was just one of the horrible <laughs> things that they figured they could do to Gizmo because they hated that little puppet or that little animatronic so much. And then we get a great scene with the mom coming under siege from these uh, creatures. And this, I think this is my f- favorite scene in the movie. This is so notorious. Uh, if you remember nothing else from this movie, you've got to remember this scene. Mom goes upstairs and sees that the pods have hatched. So she goes downstairs, and she immediately starts getting terrorized by these things. She runs to the kitchen, and there is one uh, of the gremlins playing on top of... Man, they don't have anything else but this guy's inventions in their kitchen, and uh-huh. I don't know how they have the counter space for all of it, because they're really rather big. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there's there's one for juicing oranges. There's one that's like a blender, but it's a bowl, which is funny, because uh-huh. I remember this in my mind as an actual blender. Uh, which makes more sense than this blender that's a bowl. Maybe there's supposed to be a lid for it or something. I don't know. But anyway, yeah, yeah. She she quickly runs over and uh, is able to switch it on, and the gremlin just totally uh, gets torn up, and the green goo and blood is like splattering everywhere. It's a pretty gross scene for a kids' movie, really. She runs mm-hmm. across, and there's another one there on the counter, and she stabs it. Just flat out stabs it yeah. in the chest. And, and I was like, whoa, I do not remember this. I mean, I remember the blender. I, I didn't remember that either. Man, it's it's dark for this kind of movie. Uh, and then it's he brutal. stabs it in the chest and then turns around and there's one uh, that she's able to shove into the microwave and turn the microwave on. Of course, we all remember this one too. And it mm-hmm. pulls no punches. It shows you this gremlin in the microwave and suddenly it explodes and uh, junk goes all over the microwave and she leaves this kitchen shaken uh and and there's just complete carnage all over the place and if you know if it weren't green and black and gooey uh, this would be like the kitchen scene from your next yeah yeah in fact uh i would almost say the kitchen scene from your next is a bit of a throwback to this because we do get a blender death there too but it's a person true and it's a comedy True. as well. <laughs> yeah, everybody remembers this scene. It was – we talked about it as kids. How can you not? Who, who of us had ever seen anything like this before as a child? <laughs> right, exactly. And, and it, you know, it's Christmas time now. I've been listening to Christmas music and stuff. And I swear, every time I hear the song, Do You Hear What I Hear, ah! this is the first thing that I think of. That's it's the very right. first thing I think of every single time because it's playing, the gremlins turn it on really loud and it startles her. She eventually turns it off. But every time I hear that Christmas song, I think of uh, this scene. And after the one in the microwave, she comes into the living room and there's something moving in one of the stockings. And I think that she stabs at the stocking, but it was just a little animatronic toy. And then I think maybe the lights go out and um, we see all the lights on the Christmas tree, which is behind her, go out, except for these two red lights. And you realize that they're glowing eyes and she walks towards the tree and the tree attacks her. Like, obviously, it's it's a gremlin in there that's doing the attacking, but it really looks like she's being attacked by the Christmas tree. Yeah. Um, And that's when uh, Billy comes in and and uh, and cuts off the gremlin's head um, and it shoots into the fireplace and burns up in the fire. With the samurai sword they keep by the door that they've been calling attention to because it keeps falling off the wall every time the door opens. Right, right, right. Like, my gosh, family, like, you really have no sense of safety. You have these these strange (laughs) contraptions that do nothing but harm in the house. You've got a samurai sword that falls off every time you get in and then you you invite these creatures into the home. I, I really think it's just this family doesn't care about, they have a death wish. <laughs> That's what it is. They have no concern the, for their it own was, safety. It was the eighties. It was a different time. Our parents let us go out and play, didn't even know where we were. They didn't have any of those baby proofing things and stuff back then. <laughs> That's and, true. You no, know, it was it was just devil may care. But now um, were you were you thinking uh Evil Dead when the tree was attacking her? No, but now that you say it, I am. <laughs> I was just – I couldn't help but wonder. There's so many uh, callbacks to earlier films. I could not help but wonder if, if Joe Dante was throwing that one in there too. 
I don't know. Certainly a possibility. Um, So the last, I I guess, I mean, if you do the numbers, I think that they've now killed them all, except for the one in the school that got away, which we never really see him again. We, I, I guess, Dante in a in an interview said that he just runs and joins the other ones at some point. But as far as we know, the only one that's left is, is Stripe and we see him and he breaks out and and goes out the window. Um, and Billy grabs Gizmo and runs after him and Spike leads them to the YMCA where he jumps in the swimming pool and the swimming pool starts bubbling and smoking and flashing and the flashes are all red and green and uh, Billy goes running out and I, I just love this visual. He runs out into the darkness and into the snow and we can just see through the glass doors and windows of the YMCA all this flashing red and green light the kind of howling of the new gremlins uh, getting created. He goes then, I think, to the cops, but of course they don't believe him. But but as he's telling... (laughs) Yeah, they're drunk. You know, as cops will be on Christmas Eve, I suppose. The two cops Um, in this town, by the way. Yeah, the the, the whole police force. (laughs) The two of them. It's Mayberry, man. But as he's... Yeah, <laughs> it's total Mayberry. As he's telling them, we get a shot. It's a wide shot of the street in town, and we see just hundreds of gremlins uh, coming down the street. And I always remember that shot too, and I really like it. I didn't read anything about how that was done. Do you think that was stop motion? It I, it had all the hallmarks of stop motion. I think it was. Yeah, it looked a lot like it to me. I could tell there was a matte painting around uh, that dark spot where the gremlins are emerging from of the rest of the the street or the town or whatever. And then, of course, they're in the middle, and they just have that jumpiness to them. And, of course, they're all full-figured, too. So, yeah, it had to be stop motion. It's not a very long yeah. scene, but it's it's effective. It does what it needs to do. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's really brief. I mean, just a few seconds. Um, but you just you get the idea that there are now hundreds of these things. And then we basically just get a mischief montage um, of what these gremlins are doing around town. Um, first, we uh, go to the Futterman's house um, where we've met Mr. Futterman before. And now we meet Mrs. Futterman, who is played by Jackie Joseph, yeah. who was the original Audrey in the original uh, Little Shop of Horrors, yeah. which Dick Miller was also in with her. Um, and I didn't even realize that until you and I watched that movie together and talked about it. And um, the gremlins are messing with their antenna. Mr. Futterman goes out to see what's going on. And uh, the gremlins drive his snowplow through the garage at him, drive it into the house. And um, it, it appears that it drives it right into Mr. and Mrs. Futterman. And all my life growing up, I thought that they died. But And so then I was surprised because they popped back up in Gremlins 2. So obviously they didn't die. I didn't notice until today that at the very end of the movie, in the background, there's a news report about all the weird things that had happened the night before. And it says, and we'll be talking to Mr. Futterman at the, at the hospital. So uh. um, they weren't intended to die, I guess. But in my kid mind, I, I thought that they had. And again, now so there's a little there's a gag with a post office box that a gremlin's in. They're messing with the stoplights and causing car wrecks. They kill a Santa. Um, <laughs> we hear on the radio that they've broken into the radio uh, station. Um, and then another scene that I always remember. And again, it's another one of those dark ones. Um, uh, the Mrs. Deagle scene. You want to do the Mrs. Deagle scene? Oh my gosh, this is also yeah. You're right. This is the only. In fact, I remember the scene and I forgot what movie it was from. Believe it or not. Uh, but yeah, That's Mrs. Funny. Mrs. Deagle, who you'd mentioned earlier, who must have had a bigger role in the original script because she yeah she did she did okay yeah she's really inter- just like Judge Reinhold. She's kind of introduced and we forget about her except we at least see Judge Re- uh, see her again. Um, later Mm -hmm. in this scene. And it turns out that Mrs. Deagle, I guess part of the reason she hates dogs so much is she is the crazy cat lady. Yeah. (laughs) She's got cats everywhere, and she's coming down the stairs in this mechanical, uh, what do you call it? It's like a wheelchair that goes up and down stairs. Like a a stair lift, right? Yeah, a stair lift. But, of course, she's rich, so she has this very uh, ornate and elaborate stair lift. The staircase curves around what must be once or twice uh, to get to the top of the of the house. Anyway, it's a very big house, and uh, she is. Uh, her cats are kind of running around. She's trying to corral them. In the meantime, there's a gremlin you can see in there who is messing with the controls on her chairlift. Gremlins pop out, scare her. She runs to her chairlift and tries to get away. But when she turns it on, it goes super speed 
up and around and around and around and then completely flies out the window (laughs) and over (laughs) over the cop car that's outside and she ends up in the snow and i I almost half and and her legs it's as much as you can do that's not a cartoon to have two Uh legs just sticking up out of the snow after somebody fell down yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's It's hilarious it's hilarious it's such a funny joke but it's also really dark i mean she is. is dead I'm sorry, that scene really bothered me as a kid. I was like and, – and I guess that was the first one time I realized, wow, a, a gremlin killed somebody and, oh, that poor lady. You know, I mean it was just you know, it was uh-huh. one of those things. No, I mean even though she was villainous and we didn't like her, I mean that was – in this scene, she's presented more as just kind of a feeble old lady and, and you do kind of feel bad for her as horrible as she's been. But that's just you know one of those darker elements. I forgot to mention that in the original script, um, the ending of the mom scene was much different too. Billy uh, was to come home and the gremlins were to roll his mom's head down the stairs. Oh my gosh. And, and I, <laughs> I, I've got to say, I've got to say, I'm glad that they toned it down a little bit because uh, I think that might have been a little bit too much. Uh, I, I don't think it would have been as heartwarming if some of those things happen. Uh, then we cut to a really funny scene where the gremlins have taken over Dory's The Bar, and it's just full of gags. I mean, it's played completely for the comedy. There's like a Humphrey Bogart gag. There's a gremlin doing the flash dance uh, or, or a similar uh, dance gag um they're smoking they're drinking they're dancing and laughing um it's really funny but they're also menacing kate who i guess decided that she needed to stay in tin bar even though the <laughs> gremlins were there. yeah i couldn't figure <laughs> that out either she's she's really trying her best too uh to keep them happy i don't know what she thinks if i placate them they'll leave me alone i don't know <laughs> right it, it's a pretty silly but scene it is silly i but it's fun and it appealed to me as a kid uh, you know it, it, i don't know more mature audience might think is a little too goofy or over the top. I just think it's funny. Like I said, I think it's a good balance of the goofy and the scary. Um, But Billy shows up and rescues her and uh, they have to run. I think they run to their bank. And and while they're in there, Kate finally tells her story of why she hates Christmas. It was Christmas Eve. I was nine years old. Me and mom were, were decorating the tree waiting for dad to come home from work. A couple hours went by. Dad wasn't home. Mom called the office. No answer. Christmas Day came and went, and still nothing. Police began a search. Four or five days went by. Neither one of us could eat or sleep. Everything was falling apart. It was snowing outside. The house was freezing, so I went to try to light up the fire. And that's when I noticed the smell. Firemen came and broke through the chimney top. And me and Mom were expecting them to pull out a dead cat or a bird. And instead, they pulled out my father. He was dressed in a Santa Claus suit. He'd been climbing down the chimney on Christmas Eve. His arms loaded with presents. He was going to surprise us. He slipped and broke his neck. Died instantly. And that's how I found out there was no Santa Claus. I didn't remember this scene, obviously, as a kid. You can't remember everything about this movie. But I watched this, and my eyes were rolling. Uh, I know that people are divided about this scene. I know that even Spielberg himself and some of the some of the studio heads wanted them to cut it. But John, Joe Dante was like, "No, you've got to leave it in because it's it's a metaphor for the whole movie." And what makes this scene, I thought, uncomfortable is that you don't know whether it's supposed to be funny or whether it's supposed to be sad, because the story she's telling is a well known urban legend, right? In the in the world of this movie, I don't know. I, I just I just was I it was like it well known before this though? I or does it I come from so. this? No, I I think this is a well known urban even before this. I you know it did not come. Christopher Columbus did not make this one up. 
no. Gotcha. The whole, the whole, uh, you know, dad was missing. It was Christmas Day. We called people, and then we found that he was stuck in the chimney. Uh, the chimney, down. yeah. yeah that, that's that's an old story. It's an old story, and and yeah, for her to tell it about her dad, and it's supposed to be the sort of sad moment. Plus, I feel like it was shoehorned in. Uh, it's like it. It just comes out of nowhere, and oh, this isn't the first first Christmas that was horrible for me. And she tells this story, and then it's like, okay, we move on. You know, it's not a setup for yeah. them to get closer. It's not a th- it, it just it just feels wrong. I think. I mean, it it doesn't feel wrong for a goofy thing like that to be in a goofy movie like this. I mean, I get the director's point, but I just. I just think it stands out like a sore thumb. It's just too much. Now that you say that, that it really isn't connected, there's really no purpose for it. I had never really thought about that, but you're absolutely right. I mean, it's really inconsequential to the plot. Um, it, it doesn't forward the plot in any way. It's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. I love it. And <laughs> and I think it is melodramatic, but Phoebe Cates plays it with such sincerity that – for me, it's almost like, oh, this should kind of be funny, but she's playing it with such sincerity that I almost feel guilty for even having an inclination to laugh. And I don't know. It just, oh, I just think that she delivers it so well. Um, I, I don't know. Had I never seen it, of course, I wouldn't miss it. Um, maybe it would have tightened the movie up a little bit further, but you're right. Dante wanted to keep it. And I totally understand his rationale that it really is emblematic of the tone of the film, that um, it is both dark and light. And this is one of those moments where the balance is, it could tip either way. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, and, and it's, you know, Again, I feel we've said this a million times. This is a, a classic movie, in, in especially for those of us who grew up in the '80s. Um, so, all a lot of these things are iconic. Um, but people remember this scene, like it or don't like it. People remember this scene, and if you talk about this movie, for me, this is one of the first things that comes up. Yeah. Um, I, well, so, know, I don't know. There's that. You're right. I mean, the, the sincerity is there in the acting, and you know, put other words in her mouth, and I'd probably love this scene too. Although the that's part of what kind of like distracts me from it is because all I'm imagining is, geez, how many takes did they have to do before they got one where she just wasn't busting out laughing in the middle of this? <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> you know, anyway. And, and then we're, we're leading up to the climax of the movie. Um, they, they leave the bank, and, and when they were running to the bank, the town was just in chaos. There were gremlins everywhere. There were fires. There was, you know, just chaos all around. When they come out of the bank, everything's eerily quiet. And um, uh, Kate says, where did they all go? And Billy says, well, it's going to be light soon. They're probably all together somewhere that's dark. And so where's a big place where they would all fit that somebody's where it's dark, the movie theater. And so they go to the movie theater and they find that, yes, all of the gremlins are there. They've all congregated and they are watching Snow White and they are absolutely loving it. And I love this scene too. <laughs> I mean, it's just all these gremlins in the movie theater and it's gags. You know, they're wearing sunglasses and Mickey Mouse ears and they're eating the popcorn and they're like, you know, drinking out of the soda fountains and stuff. Um, it's, it's goofy, but uh, I just love it. And I love that they are transfixed by snow white it's cute (laughs) even these you know these mischievous villainous gremlins in this scene are cute uh and and i i love it yeah it really endears you to them and and that's part of how this movie works is by yes it shows you this violence and these guys are are, can do these terrible things but there's this part of you that's drawn to them as well it kind of makes you think you know what? It, if it weren't for the fact that it might murder me in my sleep, this would be kind of a fun pet to have at home. <laughs> yeah, they're mischievous. You know, yeah. it's it's almost like I mean, I guess they do have some murderous intent, but more than that, it's just causing mischief and chaos. Um, and there's something cute uh, about that. I yeah, don't know. Having, I like it. They're having fun, right? And they're and, and right, right. They're seeing these 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 uh, other small creatures up on the screen, and they think it's cute. Th- this was definitely dark days at Disney. Uh, I think it was the mid-'80s, 84 and 85. Disney was really uh, actually a threat of hostile takeover, I think. They were not doing well. I, that's the only way I can imagine they would have allowed uh, Snow White to play such a prominent role in this film. You would never see this today. <laughs> you would yeah, that's see... true. I had never even thought about that. Oh, they would never <clears throat> get the rights for something like that. Uh, they really don't let their movies show up in any other movie let alone something like this but uh yeah that's true it's interesting we're so lucky because it it totally it's a very endearing scene you're absolutely right right 
right? It works. Um, well, Billy and Kate, um, break the gas line uh and they they run out and they blow up the theater but not before stripe leaves the theater because he sees candy in an apartment store window across the street so we presume that all of the gremlins are dead except now stripe who's in this department store and they chase him in there billy sends kate to go try to get the lights turned on somehow which she does she goes to the control room and she's flipping on uh various lights um but she also one of the light switches she turns on turns on this fountain, and of course we know if, if Spike or Stripe gets water, he'll just uh, reproduce again. So we know that that's probably going to play into it. Um, and then again, it's just kind of a montage. It's it's a clever montage. I like it. They Billy chases uh, Stripe through these various uh, parts of the department store. So there's one. Um, in uh, the hardware section where Stripe throws saw blades at him. There's one in a sporting goods section where he like hits him with a baseball bat and shoots him with a crossbow. Uh, then there's one in like a, oh gosh, I guess it's hardware again where he gets a chainsaw um, and is, is going after Billy with a chainsaw. I, I was watching this with my wife and I think it was at this point that she turned to me and said, boy, these gremlins are pretty smart for newborns. Like they know how to operate a chainsaw. Yeah. <laughs> they know how to operate a gun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Smart and strong for as small as they are. Apparently. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, Gizmo has gone off on his own and there's this really funny little scene of him like army crawling <laughs> across the store. <laughs> and then he gets a Barbie car and he's driving around in this Barbie car, which is just so cute. Um, and it all ends at a confrontation at this fountain where Stripe now has a gun and he He's shooting at Billy and getting ready to jump into the fountain, um, which he doesn't jump in. He just dips his finger in, but the it's he kind of starts to reproduce. But here comes Gizmo in his Barbie car to save the day. Um, he jumps his Barbie car over this ramp and uh, is able to somehow knock these blinds open that allows the sunlight to come in, um, which causes uh, Stripe to melt a la the Wicked Witch of the West. Um, And again, good practical effects here for this um, melting. Oh, it's such a gross scene. And that was one that stuck with me as a kid too. Uh, In a delightful, gleeful way, we all loved seeing Stripe melt down and then come back out for one final jump scare before he completely melts into nothing. (laughs) Yeah, jumps out of the the fountain just as a skeleton. And the skeleton is still kind of like undulating, like it's breathing, (laughs) but... Uh, and then it just dissolves into a puddle of goo that just bubbles. Uh, yeah, it's it was good. It's memorable. And that's pretty much the end, except for that we get a cap. We get we go back to uh, Billy's house um, where his family has gathered, and the old Chinese guy from the beginning shows up and says, "I told you, with Mogwai comes much responsibility." He takes Gizmo back, which I remember as a kid thinking that was so sad. <laughs> 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 like here, Billy and and uh, Gizmo have been through so much together; they've watched each other's back, and now he has to go back and live uh, with the Chinese guy. But and and so the last shot that we get is the Chinese guy, but he says Gizmo says bye, Billy to Billy um, before he leaves. It's really sweet. Um, and then the last shot we get is the old Chinese guy walking down the street at night at Christmas time. Beautiful, beautiful shot. The full moon in the background, and we return to the father's uh, narration, and he closes out the story. And then that that's the end. At the end of. A great movie. You know, I, I asked you, I don't remember which one of us brought this one up um, as a suggestion for this year, but I specifically asked you if we could save this one for the last because I just have so many fond memories of this movie. I just like it so much. Um, I just kind of wanted to save the best for last this year. Yeah, it is a Christmas movie through and through, as we said, unlike some of the other ones we've watched, which uh, either just sort of take place at Christmas as convenience or just throw some tinsel up every now and then. Uh, This movie is all about giving a gift. Uh, It's about the terrible tragedies that happen during the holidays that uh, throw people into depression. Uh, The the caroling uh, of, uh, you know, there's caroling. Making Christmas cookies. That's right. And eating the heads off in a sinister way. All that stuff. It's perfectly encapsulated in this film. It, do, it does warm you up. It, it is a warm movie, even as dark as it is. I didn't remember it being this dark, of course, and so watching it again, I realized, wow, for a kid's – they just aren't going to make another movie like this. Nope. 
they don't do this kind of thing. And they're certainly not rated PG. This this movie was one of the two movies, the other one being Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, that just rode yeah. that line where they couldn't be R, but they were really not as kid-friendly as PG tends to be. And so because Steven Spielberg is all-powerful, he said, well, MPAA, you guys just need to make another rating and put it in between. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he got a PG-13 movie. It's a P- it's Steven Spielberg used to insist that I do not make R-rated films. And that's right, right. That's kind of the bullying that he did to make sure that this movie uh, got uh, a whole new rating made. Well, th- not for this one, but for subsequent films. I think Red Dawn was the next was the one to actually get the first PG thirteen. And then I don't yeah. think he, he yeah. really uh, did make it. I think was one of the first ones too. Yeah, and uh, he didn't make a R rated movie. I think until Schindler's List. So it was a little ways after this. Yeah, before he actually. <laughs> But, but yeah, uh, I liked it too, and I still enjoy it, and I like the uh, the back and forth. I'll be watching this one again um, more soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you say we won't get another movie like this. I would say Krampus was pretty close um, well, in tone, true. but, <clears throat> but um, not, not appropriate. Not so kid friendly though as this one is. Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, I think we're you and I might be thinking about this from our own perspective. I don't know. Someday, maybe if either of us have kids, uh, we might be a little bit more um, guarded about what we would share with them. I know my sister wouldn't let her kids watch this. Not yet, anyway. I mean, we were watching it when we were their age, but there's no way she'd let them watch this. I know. There was a sequel, Gremlins Two: The New Batch, um, which really amped up the comedy and uh, toned down the darkness. I. I liked it. Um, I didn't think it was nearly as good. I didn't think it had nearly the heart of this one. It's it's far more goofy. I was surprised to read today and looking uh, at at stuff about this movie that Joe Dante actually prefers the second one, um, which yeah, kind of right. surprised me. But yeah, wow. and you know, there's been talk. There's always talk. There's been talk for years about rebooting this franchise. Maybe you know whether it be in a, a direct sequel or a remake. Um, and I have mixed feelings about that uh, because you know if they did it now, it would all be CGI. Yeah. It would probably not have the dark undertones that the original has. It would probably be much more family-friendly. Not that there's anything wrong with family-friendly fare, um, but this is one of those movies that there's a part of me that kind of is secretly hoping for a sequel, but if there was one, I would hope that they would try to do as much of it practically as they could to be in keeping with the original. But I just the other part of me thinks that would never happen, and maybe we should just leave better or you know good enough alone um so i don't know yeah you know you're right the way that they bounce around and the way that the gremlins interact with each other and the way that they move it just works better as a puppet show you know it, yeah i just i can't see it as a as a cgi animated thing it, it'll be too slick and too smooth and it'll lose yeah. a lot of its charm yeah well regardless of what happens we'll always have the original so um i'm grateful for that that's right that's right well, thank you again for listening. This has uh, been your Christmas edition of Two Guys and a Chainsaw. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. You can also like us on Facebook and uh, Google+. Plus. We have a couple pages there. Leave us a comment. Let us know what you thought of this episode and about this film, as well as suggestions for, for future episodes. Until then, I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. With Two Guys and a Chainsaw. Two Guys and a Chainsaw.